0: To To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. So
1: this morning we're going to jump in to Luke chapter 2. And the last time the message was titled being part of God's plan, being part of God's plan. And, you know, we, we like to be, we like to not put on a production. We like to be a, an interactive church. So this would be a good plug for the ministry application if you haven't signed up for that. Uh, so we have, I'm going to say probably a 70% or higher service rate. So 70% of the people in the church are serving in some capacity, even if they're serving outside of the church, which is wonderful. I mean, that's what the church is. It's a body of believers that come together and work together to further God's kingdom or to make things palatable and and present the gospel in physical ways, emotional ways, spiritual ways. Uh, So when I taught the message being part of God's plan, I just want to encourage everybody here. And we're going to see this as well. Uh, this morning that, again, what are your requirements? You know, the world looks for a long resume to be able to hire you. God says, are you willing? Can you be humble? You don't have to really have talent. I will find something to do. I will empower you. So I really enjoy teaching that. And today's message is titled, The Savior Has Come. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here in my opening because there's a lot of really good apologetic stuff that we're going to go through. And, you know, as people of faith, we should know. First Peter tells us this to have a, a defense or a reason or an intellectual argument, spiritual argument for why we believe what, what we believe. You know, I didn't come out of the womb praising Jesus. It took me time to investigate, to understand, to look at this intellectually, but also not miss the the calling of the Holy Spirit to bring me towards the things of God. So this is an amazing thing, how God works with our physical being, our emotional being, our mind, and our spirit to bring us whole person to salvation. Uh, So the Savior has come. Why has he come? What's the purpose? You know, here's the four parts that are listed uh, that we go through every Sunday to kind of give you a breakdown of the sections that we're in. So we're going to jump in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You're going to find a lot of detail in the Gospel of Luke. And we covered this in the foundational portion. And if you didn't get it, get it for free off the website. Uh, Very important. Luke gives probably more details about history and, and government and things to really solidify the fact that this is why we believe what we believe. He proves it. Right, So he says, Caesar Augustus, we're going to talk about him as a real person. That all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Detail, detail, detail to be registered with Mary, his betrothed uh, wife, who was with child. So it was that they were there. Uh, The days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger or a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. So I like proving the existence of God. I'm going to have a lot of fun with this section. And some of you may say, gee, that was a lingering question. Some people that I care for have challenged me. I didn't know how to answer it. So we're going to to really jump into this. So number one is Christ is born. So this census drove Joseph and Mary to fulfill prophecy prophecy that was established one of many prophecies hundreds of years prior so this particular prophecy comes from micah 5 2 in the old testament prophesying about the messiah right how many things were prophesied about jesus coming to the earth when it would happen even some of his uh physical characteristics who his family would be um you know you could fake a lot of things when you say that I'm the Messiah or I'm a prophet, but it's really, really hard to fake your lineage. <laughs> Who you're going to come through, what line, what date of birth you're going to show up. That's like an impossible task. But these things were prophesied. So Micah 5, two says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. So Bethlehem was a little town and God is saying, watch what I'm going to do when I bring the Messiah in. I'm going to even differentiate it from the other Bethlehem, which was a different town. So God is the, you know, when you look at, I took uh, uh, statistics and probabilities at Rutgers when I was in college, fascinating class, God narrows down these prophecies so small that it's impossible for anybody to fake this stuff. It becomes what's called a mathematical improbability. I'm sorry. I, I like the heady stuff. I do. I do. But when I pray, I I you know, I just want to talk to the Lord. Okay. So, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, right? The one to be ruler in Israel which is a future of fulfillment, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, or in Hebrew, from the days of eternity. So here's a double positive, which when you go into the Hebrew and you do that, um, that uh, brings emphasis to what we're talking about. So what God is trying to say that when Jesus, you see him as the babe in the manger, or the first century people, he didn't come as a baby. That is when God the, the Son came in the form of a human being. This is very important, double positive about uh, everlasting. God is saying, you think you're seeing a baby, but he's existed from eternity. He is fully God. He's God the Son. Very, very powerful scripture. So, the census fulfills this, right? Caesar Augustus, who was he? Well, he was actually an, a very effective leader for a secular guy, You know, this was his gift. Uh, He, many would say he helped to usher in or strengthen what was called the Pax Romana. You can study this in your history books. Everything I say to you this morning, you can go back in your history books, which is the Roman peace. So he was such an effective leader that he made the social situation very palatable. There were Roman roads that most of the time went in a straight line, not like some of the highways in New Jersey where they're all over the place, you know? Yeah, I look at my little uh, compass in my car, I'm going northwest, I'm going southwest, I'm going, whatever. But the point is that uh, what, what these some of these emperors did is they thought they were making peace for the great Roman Empire, but they were making things palatable for the gospel to go out into the far reaches of the world. You know, man thinks he's doing something and God says, you know, I, I can tweak that and I could use that for my own uh, glory. So this is a palatable situation for, for Christianity to spread. When we look at the census, right? We take census, census in the United States, uh, many empires, ancient empires, and people don't realize, realize this, took a census. And what's the reason for it? Especially when you're that large, it's to, if, you, if it's representative government, to represent your constituents. But, you know, as all governments want to do is they want to tax you. And in some respects, they want to control you. So uh, the census was a way for secular governments to be able to achieve these goals. Now, there was more than one Roman census. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of setting a bunch of stuff up here because, you know, there were, there's some criticisms of the scripture, which I'm going to address here. Quirinius here was governing a verb... He was governing the district of Syria. So who was Quirinius? Well, if we look up history, it's easy to find. He was a real figure. His name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. Easy for me to say. I had to practice that. Uh, But this, this man was very interesting. He lived to 72 years old, which was not that common back then. He was also a very dynamic figure who was involved in many different political positions. So... There's a few criticisms. One criticism is is that Quirinius wasn't really governing Syria. Listen, I have friends who are atheists, and I do step on my tongue and listen to some of their criticisms because ultimately I want to lead them to Jesus Christ. Okay, It's not easy for me to do, ask my wife, but I, I do do it. And one of the criticisms is that was this criticism of this historical figure so let me just start with number one number one is if luke was going to lie or let me back that strike that if luke wanted the whole world to read his gospel and understand who jesus was and he was a good liar and he wanted to convince people why would he put a bold-faced lie right in the beginning of the book so it's a weak criticism It's a weak criticism. That's like me writing, I'm going to come out in 2022, write a historical work about the United States, and I want everybody to buy my book on Amazon. And in my first chapter, I said, in 2022, Bill Clinton was the governor of New Jersey. So most people would read that and go, why am I reading this stupid book? I want my money back. So first thing, if you're going to lie... Why would you? So, and I, I take the point of the polemic. Why would you put so much detail, names, places, situations, if you're going to lie? You, liars try to be very vague on purpose. So that's that's pathetic. But let's just go into Corinius. Let's look at today's political structure, right? And this happens on both sides of the aisle. In Virginia, Terry McAuliffe was the governor then Ralph Northam was the governor, then Terry McAuliffe ran again. If he would have beat Youngkin, he would have been back in the governor's seat. Northam was lieutenant governor to McAuliffe, then he later becomes governor. Right? When we look at the structure in Washington, D.C., you can have somebody who's a staffer, who gets into a federal agency, who ends up in Congress, Who ends up on the secretary of state or secretary of defense, becomes a vice president, then tries to become president. So there are certain people who make a career out of living in Washington, D.C., because that's where the money is. I personally have no desire to go there for any reason these days. Uh, But this is what happens. Now, Quirinius was one of the original career politicians. This is what he did. Corinius was in the military. Corinius was governing. Corinius served multiple terms in the Roman government. You see where I'm going with this? So these, listen, if you're going to tell me that God doesn't exist or there was no such person as Jesus, give me something I can sink my teeth into. Give me something that's going to tie me up and and going into research. Don't give me these weak criticisms because they don't work. The other issue was that, It was a very tenuous situation, if you understand Roman politics, between the Roman government and the Jewish religion. The Romans felt that the Jews were messy because whenever they tried to uh, get involved or tax them or do other things, uh, if they pushed too hard, the Jewish people would revolt. Now, we've seen this in history then what the, the, the Romans would do is they would send their soldiers in heavy-handed and people would die, and that would cause more problems. So Rome looked at the, the Jewish, especially Judea, as sort of a client state. Sometimes the Romans would do things directly, such as um, taxation and censuses. Sometimes if they could feel they could trust one of the Herods, and those people were weird too because the Herods fancied themselves as sort of secular Messiah which is sort of an oxymoron. So when Jesus came, he ticked off everybody. You know, He upset the the Roman structure. He also uh, upset the Herods and the the religious structure, which had become corrupt. So when you start to understand this, you get, oh man, I get the picture. But if you're in the first century or the second century and you're reading Luke's gospel, in your mind, you have a picture of, yeah, I do remember when... um, when Corineus uh, was governing Syria, and this is another thing: in times of war, and this has happened in the United States, where the president is totally—you uh, uh, know—he's very busy with the war effort, and the the, uh, the vice president runs day-to-day operations of the country. Right? We've seen this in times of stress in the United States. So again, these these arguments are are very weak. Um, so for those of you that didn't want a history lesson this morning, I apologize up front. But I do have to answer some of these, these uh, criticisms. So another topic was, where was Jesus born? Now, if you look at the word manger, it could mean, it's, it can mean two things. It could mean a feeding trough for animals. They were usually wooden and they were somewhat elevated and they would put grain or uh, different vegetation for the, uh, the animals to eat. But it also could mean the stall, the actual stall area, or it could mean both. So Justin Martyr and Origen later said in their historical works that Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem which is pretty interesting, too. I've been to Pennsylvania and some other states where these these rock formations, and they're, they're actually quite fascinating. You could live in a cave. Uh, they could protect you from the elements to a certain extent. Uh, you can be protected from invaders if you put some sort of rudimentary kind of gating system uh, over there. But it's certainly not glamorous, and I'm going to come back to that. Another criticism is there was no room at the inn. So people say... Like they know, like they went back 2000 years and, and, and found the government documents. Um, there was no motel six back there. You know what I'm saying? What do you mean? There was no inn in Bethlehem. It was too small of a town. Number one, that's an assumption. Number two, it's kind of neat. And in my life, I've gotten to meet people from all over the world and, Near East, Middle East, Far Eastern people are very hospitable in America. We like kind of like our personal space, but the culture of middle easterners near Easterners are they want to put you up in their home and they could be poor, but they 'll share the little bit that they have with you so culturally, culturally, what would happen was if you had a meager property you had a structure, you would have sort of another sort of structure where you would put travelers up. It was expected in that culture that you don't leave a traveler to be without water or food and to to sleep outside, you take them in. So there was this kind of agreement that the people had with, with travelers, and they got to learn about them. Oh, where'd you come from? We came all the way from China. Wow, what's China like? And, you know, what are you guys, what are your, sp- so this is what would happen. So the people would put them up for a small fee to help themselves up, out, but they would also help the travelers. Now, because of the census, it was a confusing time. People were going back to their home places, and they were probably filling up Sort of like, um, you know, supply chain issues that we have here. It just was all of these these inns were filled. There was no place to put Mary and Joseph. So they ended up in this sort of cave-like structure. Uh, Am I married to the cave thing? Not really. Um, But... I've seen them, you know, sometimes we watch Homestead Rescue, <laughs> this family goes in and they rescue all these off the gridder people and they make uh, out of a pile of scrap wood, they make, they can make the Taj Mahal. So, uh, but I'm, I'm watching and I'm actually learning a lot about what they do last criticism. And then we'll move on to some of the applications, December 25th, December 25th, <laughs> you're laughing because you've heard this. So here's the difference between a a supposed Bible fallacy or inconsistency versus what we do culturally as a people. You have to dissociate the two of them, okay? So, most likely, I'll give it to the complainers, most likely Jesus wasn't born uh, December 25th. For me personally, I celebrate the fact that he was born. I'm I'm certainly not married to December 25th because based on my research, it probably wasn't the date. It does appear that the Romans, in, they tried to kill so many Christians, right? And they just were popping up everywhere, including in their own government. They figured, you know what? Why, why are we persecuting them? Let's use them to our advantage. So it, it does appear, if you look in the history books, that the Roman government um, said to the, you know, the Christian culture hierarchy, we're going to stop doing this, the Edict of Toleration, the Edict of Milan, all these different edicts. Uh, But we're going to kind of merge our holidays together. So as a a people, as an empire, we can all kind of come together and we can celebrate together. So it does appear that uh, some of the traditional things that we celebrate around Christmas time, I mean, look at the commercializations in the stores and how people treat each other to get the last doll. It's like, it's the, re- the reason for the season is sharing and loving Jesus and you're f- having a fistfight in Walmart. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So the way I feel is is, this isn't, the Bible didn't say this. This is a cultural thing that happened a long time ago that is still practiced today. So I know for me, when people ask me, you know, why do you you, you have a Christmas Eve service and stuff? And I just say, listen, because I'm going to see people I've never seen all years, and I want to preach the gospel to them. I don't really care what date it was. It wasn't important. What was important was that he came. The Savior has come is the name of the title. So. Amen. (laughs) But there's a difference between somebody criticizing a line in the scripture or a word versus a cultural thing. That's not in the scripture. Why are you attacking God in the Bible? December 25th. It's not in there. But anyway, it's not a big deal. Right. We we don't want to. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Jesus came to save us. Sometimes we get caught up in these little rabbit hole and rabbit trails and really they're not important. All right. What's important is the story here. Um, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, verse 7, which means that Mary later had more children. It's another another thing that people say, you know, Mary was a perpetual virgin. I, I don't know where the, there's any special glory for that. She was a married woman. She was married to her husband. After the miraculous birth, she had other children. We see that in the scriptures. So why do people say that? The word Jesus is a, is a, actually a translated, then transliterated word. But in the original, the word was Yahshua which where we get uh, 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 Joshua from, but it also means God is salvation. Very fitting name. Jesus had multiple names. He was the lamb. He was the lion. He was Yeshua. He was, uh, you know, the alpha and the omega. He is, not he was. He's still still here. (laughs) So, but here's, let me just get to this and then move on to things and we'll have it flow a little smoother now. But at least you got a lot of these things kind of, you know, you've heard before and maybe the question has never been answered. I uh, did a lot more research into Roman history than I wanted to, but I just felt it was important to follow this to its end. That's what I do. So what we do find is that this was not a glamorous ministry. I can tell you, my wife and I had taken care of animals for many years. Uh, they're messy, they're sloppy, and they don't eat with a knife and fork and a bib. So I love animals, but that's just the way they eat. And here Jesus comes into the world this way. In great humility. And we're going to get to why that is. Um, But I also see that this wasn't a glamorous ministry. And we're going to talk about some of the things people ascribe to Jesus that weren't true. And what the motivation is for it in some of these ministries today. But ministry is not supposed to be glamorous. And sometimes you can... To me, I think sometimes the internet is a dangerous place to find spirituality. And they find these up and coming you know, really cool and really relevant preachers and they saying something that no one's ever said before. Well, I certainly hope it's biblical because I don't need to come up here and say something no one's ever said before. Maybe it's just immature to me. I want to stick to the scripture and I want to explain the scripture to you in a way that you can digest it and apply it So you got these guys and people they quote them They put their their quotes and their videos on their social media walls and some of them are heretics When you get deeper into their ministry, you find their belief in god is completely wrong But they don't care because they're making money and they're famous So you got to watch that stuff. You got to be discerning. Um, I don't know why glamour has to be attached to the things of Christ because it never was since the beginning. So let's continue. You know, ministry can be messy. You know, some of these ministries, they'll never do a funeral. They'll never sit down with somebody in council. When you get deeply involved in people's lives, all of our lives are messy at times. But some of these guys, man, they just... They don't want any part of it because they don't want the messy part. They just want the famous and the money part. So I, I reject those, those ministries. Verse 8, continuing on, it says, if, if it's good enough for my Lord, it's good enough for me. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Let me stop there. So you see, whether it's Joseph, Mary, Zacharias, the angels are often, when they appear to humans, they try to comfort them saying, I'm not here for judgment. If you saw an angel, not like those old Renaissance paintings, but they, if we actually saw an angel in their true form, we would be frightened because they're just powerful creatures and they do the Lord's bidding. So when the angel would come and we keep saying this and show up to a human, they would have to just get get them at ease because there could be a panic that the the details in the Bible are amazing. He says, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards mankind. So, two out of four is the shepherds are informed. Now, research, right? Um, you can maybe not a lot has changed, maybe a little bit of technology has changed, but you know, shepherding is a—it's an outdoorsy, uh, it's it's roughing it type of occupation. It was back then, it still is today, although there are some modern methods that are used. But again, I'm, I'm not saying this. I'm reading my sources saying this. So the historical sources, objective sources, say that the shepherds were lower class and isolated from society. Didn't mean they were bad people. Even in American culture, we're starting to see a class system develop. This is what humans do to each other. So in that culture, and I'm going to go into why they were looked at it like this, the occupational hazards of their, of what they do, but they were humble and simple people. So what does God do? He reaches the forgotten ones. He reaches those on the fringes of society. And I don't say that word can have a double meaning. Fringe is a, a pejorative, like you're saying something bad about them. If you have a, a, a garment, right? The fringe is, is the piece towards the edge. So the shepherds lived out on the fringe of society. So what did God do when he heralds, you know, what would the Romans do when there was a new emperor or a great general that came back from defeating an enemy? They would have a parade and the aristocrats would get the front seats and the peasants, if they could even see what was going on, they would be in the back. God comes and the savior of the world comes in. And what does he do? He reverses it. He gets those on the fringe of society to see them first. If there's a sub-theme that I can really try to impress upon you, if you're struggling this morning here or on the live stream and you look at your life and you don't think that it's worth much, God is always looking to reach those, right, who are the humble, who are the poor in spirit. Amen? You know, you you really got to be encouraged with that one. If you look at everything he does, don't just look at the story. Don't just look at the historical account. Look in the mirror, if you're going through something right now, you know, God loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. But we as humans tend to think when things are going bad that we're, we're a problem, that we're worthless. Nobody would want me anyway. Well, that's not God's attitude. Amen? So I, I just want to make sure that we, we start to weave that through what we're seeing as we're reading it. Um, ironically, when you look at the shepherds, right, you know, shepherds out in the field back then and today, I saw a, it was a video of three shepherds and, and all their flocks were mixed. And then each shepherd, each three shepherd goes into their enclosure and they start, they have a unique call to their sheep. And all of a sudden you see this big mass of sheep start to separate into three parts into the enclosures. And not one of them went to the wrong place. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> shepherds, they, they had no clue. The people, onlookers, it's so amazing. We look at stuff that God does and we, we have no clue. And then we'll look back and go, oh, it makes sense now in hindsight. So the irony to this is that God is the good shepherd, right? We look at this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Verse 13, there was a heavenly host. So it almost seems like now... The humans are, they don 't have anxiety right they 're cool; they know the angel isn 't going to hurt them, and all of a sudden the curtain is removed, and there 's a host of angels rejoicing in the things of God. Boy, if the whole human race could could really understand this we wouldn 't have the problems we have, we have po- poverty would be eliminated. I believe a lot of things would be eliminated, so you wonder why they left their flocks to go to where this was happening you see the the shepherds weren't socialites they didn't go visit people they didn't have nice clothes to wear i think i'm going to wear something nice after i take a shower and, and blow dry my hair and shave it doesn't happen like that so the shepherds weren't socialites but boy after seeing that they're like all right let's get the young protégés to watch the flocks we're going over there to see what's going on so you see how everything fits together below the surface right Verse 14, where is this peace? Now, I talked about this at our Christmas Eve message. And people will say, and they'll say to me, well, but where's the peace on earth? Here's the catch. It's always available. However, you look at the human race and it keeps becoming more what I would call post-Christian. And some of my Christians go, don't say that. Well, we're starting to see it. We're starting to see groups come up and reject the things of the faith. So it's an inverse relationship. As, as the United States, Europe, and other places become more post-Christian, the peace will start to wane, right? Look at the crime rate in the United States. Look at the, the division, the balkanizations of the United States. How much more can we take before we break apart? But because the, as the more the Prince of Peace, he's got the peace, he owns it, he is it. And we're saying, now we don't want you. And now we can't understand why people are fighting all the time. It's really not that hard to figure out. Um, I don't know. I'm not the smartest guy around. But I did a little study on 2021. And what I found was, and I rounded it off, over 60 countries in the world and over 400, big number, militia groups and armies combined are embroiled in war and conflict today. That's a lot, man. Was there ever a, a point in time, a week, when nobody in the world was fighting against somebody else? This is the human condition. What are they fighting about? A piece of land? You know, uh, uh, to, to get, they got a, somebody offended them and it just started to spiral. You should look at the events in World War I, which was the precursor to World War Two. It could have been abated, but everybody was on edge. So this one, this one uh, situation just snowballed out of control. And between two wars... Um, I think between both wars, 100 million people lost their lives. Imagine that, right? So do we need peace? We certainly do. We certainly do. Now they're talking about, you know, what's in the news all the time, Russia and Ukraine, right? China and Taiwan. Not to mention the lower profile under the radar conflicts and wars. We really need the Prince of Peace as a human race. So we continue... Um, And I'll just leave these two points and then I'll go on to the next group of scriptures. But the Pax Romana, here's the irony here. The Roman government used force, sadly enough, and cruelty to bring the empire and the fringes. There was always sort of these skirmishes, but they used force, right? To bring people into subjection and cause a peace. However, Jesus's peace had love at its core. Look at Napoleon, who was a strange character, but he marveled at Jesus, you know, and he basically said that soldiers and and people would fight for loyalty and and honor and courage uh, and force. He goes, but, and he marveled. This is a true quote. I'm probably butchering it to some extent. I'm paraphrasing it. But he said, but look at the followers of Christ. They would do anything. You know, they would give up their lives. They would do, uh, move, they whatever at, at just at, at Jesus's beckon because of not force but love. When you're a powerful person, if you're a CEO or you're a you know a high echelon person in in the military or police or whatever, you're a person of power, and you look at those under you, you think that they're loyal to you because of you. You better think again. They maybe want some of them want your position. That's the way the world works. However, when Jesus came to the earth, his followers would give their lives because they knew he saved their souls. That separates Jesus from every other philosophy in the world. And we're going to talk about some of those philosophies, you know, but I can't say it enough. God is truly for the downtrodden. Listen, the elite society will have their chance at salvation and many in the Roman government and the Jewish elite uh, religious class, they did get saved. But God had to make sure that he reached the downtrodden first. You know, you look at society and some of the stuff that's weaving its way through our country and our world. uh, When you look at the uh, communism, Nazism, Marxism, which is unfortunately alive and well in the United States, there's an idealism that they have. And they think, well, if we just do it this way, we can get everybody on board and we can have a utopian society. How many times has that been done in the 20th century? Look at all over the globe, right? Right. Uh, But then they'll say, well, it hasn't been done right. Yeah, right. The the Castro brothers said that. Mao Zedong said that. Stalin said that. Oh, I'm going to do it right. I just have to kill a few million people. But, you know, it'll be okay after that. And it never is. But that's, that's human nature. The power of man is at the center instead of the power of God. And when the power of man is at the center, it will always fail. There will always be sorrow and loss of life. So when you're looking at some of the things that are happening in our culture and some of the, you know, you got to dig into the scripture and say, you, you either abandon God's word, and if you do, you do, that's your choice. Or you dig into it and try to understand it and try to engage the culture. Not to fight with the culture, but to bring those people, those disillusioned people over here where there is peace. And there is a sense of sanity. but Because we're not seeing it in the world. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They probably were even marveling that it was the shepherds that was telling them. What what got into you people? You're so social and friendly and and touching me and hugging me and loving me and telling me about Jesus. So that's just me. I am childlike when it comes to God because I just look at probably how it went down, how the details went down. These aren't just words on a page. This stuff really happened. How did it happen? Maybe one day when we get to heaven, God will show us the videos of it. I don't know, but it's pretty cool. Verse 19, but Mary kept all these things, pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So three is the shepherds visit Jesus. Again, how could they not? I'll go into a little bit of a deeper... So here I am, I'm reading all about these shepherds. And I have mad respect for shepherds today because they really know how to rough it for those animals. So uh, wherever they are in the Middle East, in the United States, um, God bless the shepherds. But what I did read was that the shepherds, by the religious system, think about this, they were considered, right, ceremonially unclean because of some of their job duties. So they would routinely cut themselves be defiled with their blood the blood of the animals the the feces the cleaning the stalls and all that stuff so these poor guys maybe some gals too were considered unclean because of their job duties to make matters worse they often couldn't participate in the processes to make themselves ceremonially clean again which might have made them feel hopeless so god will find the ones that are down on themselves the most and he will say you're welcome you're welcome to come in. So what we, what we learn too here is this, this kind of paradigm shift between um, going to God, and you see that in religion. You have to go to God. You have to go to the building. You have to take out your checkbook. You have to, you know, all this stuff that religion teaches. Go to God, right? And back then it was like that too. Um, here, there was something that was different through Jesus, that God, of course, God is everywhere, you know, wherever you are, there's God, right? But sort of to have this relationship, you know, when you would go through the rites and the rituals, but through Jesus Christ, God, he comes to you and you get sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is, I think sometimes as Christians, and I'll put myself in the category too, maybe we, it's just so common to us that we don't, I don't know, appreciate the Holy Spirit as much as what he is and what he's done in our life. We can always do better. Uh, And the blessing today is, I would say this, and it sounds strange coming from a pastor, but you don't have to come to church to be close to God. That's just a fact. You know, I want to want to see your faces, you know what I'm saying? Um, and we come for different reasons. We come for fellowship. We come to, to learn about God's word. And hopefully everyone leaves here with something new that they didn't know before. So there's a lot of reasons and the Bible tells us to fellowship. But if you were on a desert Island and there was nobody else around, you could still get saved. No church, no other people. God will find a way to work it out so that you could come to him. You know, that's the beauty of God. Um, so verse 17 through 20, very unusual for shepherds to herald a child king. But again, God will use the unlikely in furthering his will. Verse 19, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Do we see this a lot in the scripture? You know, Mary, she's a a, a remarkable figure when she speaks, you know, she, she says little, but there's so much depth to it. And then the Bible tells us, well, here she's not speaking, but God's saying, let me tell you what's going on in her heart. So I love this about Mary because Mary, Mary has faith in God, but she doesn't know how all the pieces are going to work themselves across the board. And aren't we a lot like Mary as your pastor? I see things, I know things, I know what the scripture says. But I wonder how God's going to get from A to Z. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't fill me in on all that stuff, right? So we ponder things in our heart too. We see, we know God exists. We know he's real. We see him work in our lives and the lives of others. But sometimes we have questions about the, the mechanics of it, right? Uh, so I, I love that about Mary. There's just such a realness to her. So if you haven't figured it all out, Be of good cheer, because Mary hadn't figured it all out either. Verse 21, last few verses. It says, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus or Yahshua, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, three things going on here, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this is the last verse for today, but it's very powerful. So thir- uh, four out of four is the law is fulfilled. Now, what do we see in the scripture? We see purification rites. Purification rites. We see sacrifices and we see the circumcision of the child. And some have questions about, well, isn't this the new covenant? This is really a transitional period. You know, even John the Baptist was an awesome figure. Jesus tells his followers what what a great prophet he is. And I don't think John saw himself that way because he kind of bridged the gap between the old covenant and the new covenant. He, he, and, he, and he leveled the field and uh, metaphorically uh, lowered the mountains and raised up the valleys so that Jesus could be unencumbered, right? We're going to look at some of his uh, teachings, John the Baptist. Very powerful, powerful figure. Uh, but this was a transitional period. Even the book of Acts. A lot of people, a lot of Christians I know say, you know, I, I read the book of Acts and I scratch my head. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Because you're seeing a transition take place. Right, the the wholesale sealing of the Holy Spirit, the the Holy Spirit empowering people, some of these what would, would be called unusual miracles. Why were they there? Does that mean that we could do stuff like that? So I, I taught I taught Acts a few years back. It's a very powerful book, but it is a when you understand it's a transitional period, you start to sit back and go okay i'm not going to beat myself up so much about this it's a transition transitions are tough to follow right but it's but it's good it's it's raw it's real all of these things and sacrifices leviticus 12 this goes back to and this again we can't miss this a pair of pigeons was sacrificed that was the sacrifice of a poor family okay so if you had nothing Unfortunately, it wouldn't cost much for these uh, sacrifices. You would do it. And again, there's doctrine out there that says Jesus was materially rich. Now, why do you think preachers preach that? Because they want to be materially rich, right? But that's a lie. He came from a, a poor family. You could see that the sacrifice was, was from Mary and Joseph and they didn't have much means. Right? So It wasn't about, and I don't know why people get hung up on this stuff. How much money Jesus had? What was in his bank account? It's not important. Who cares? Probably nothing. Um, he probably worked for a living. He probably learned the trade of his father. And then when it was time, and we're going to talk about this going forward, when he was going out to you know, do his ministry, it was time. And then he went out and he did it. He blanketed everybody. So... Number one, we see here, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abandon it. It was God's law, but he fulfilled it. He didn't eradicate it. He didn't continue it. He fulfilled it. There's a difference. And two, again, the rich and the elites were welcome, but the poor needed to be convinced. Right? You ever run into somebody that you try to tell them about the love of Christ and they're just so, uh, they've suffered trauma and and I've had this and I have to say to myself, I have to spend extra time with this person because they're wounded. They're, they're, they're. They're broken, you know, they're, they're not trusting. And I have to explain to them that God is different from people. Even those that have had a trauma from biological parents. Now I have to explain to them that God is their father. So you, what you see God doing in society is being tender, is empowering these people, right? And letting them know that they're worthy in God's eyes. Uh, and I love that about him. The Savior has come. Yes, indeed, he has. Fulfilling many, if not hundreds, of Old Testament prophecies and making a way for us to get into heaven. The uber-intellects, the globalists, the human engineers, in their effort to make a humanistic utopia will always fail. And they're failing more miserably as they push this harder and push the principles of Christ out of society. Let me leave you with four ironies, and then we'll close. So, number one. A savior was born in Bethlehem. That word means house of bread. Now you can imagine why there might've been one or two other towns in, you know, just like in New Jersey, right? How many towns are named Washington or Monroe? And you have to say which county you're in, right? So is, is anything really changed? So it was, it, was a, it was a popular name. Not a lot of towns had that name, but God did distinguish this Bethlehem from the others. So the house of bread, Who knows? The founding people who established it said, I think this is a great name. We're going to make it official. However, (laughs) the Savior was born as the bread of life, right? Jesus tells us that in his teaching. I am the bread of life. So the true bread of life was born in the house of bread, the town, right? (laughs) Two, the shepherds were the first ones to see the Savior. Now that's interesting because they didn't realize it. They saw a little baby, but what they didn't realize the shepherds was that they were seeing the good shepherd. It wasn't going to click for a while, but, but we know looking back in hindsight, right? Three, the shepherds would have been familiar with lambs. Sadly, some of them they might have um, raised to later use in the temple sacrifices, but here the shepherds They think they're seeing a human baby, (laughs) but what they're seeing is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, I can go on. I'll give you one more. Caesar Augustus thought he had the power to force people to go to their hometown for the census, when in fact it was God's power that, I don't know, did God change his mind? Did he put the thought in his head? It was God's power that used Augustus' decision to fulfill Bible prophecy about where the Savior would be born. If you have five or six more, you can talk to me about them after service, but I'm sure there's plenty of them. I love these ironies in the scripture, but here's the picture. God came, right? God, the son took the form of a man. He came to save our souls and ensure we get into heaven. The savior has come. John three sixteen says for God, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life 17 says he's come into the world that not to condemn the world 17 says but that through him the world might be saved that's available to everybody here everybody in the world and um i just pray that every church is is praying for more of the holy spirit to affect their communities to bring people what i would say across the spiritual finish line before the doors close how about you let's pray